and welcome to the Ricochet Podcast. We don't have a name for this yet, do we? I'm Rob Long. If you are listening to this for the first time, and you must be, or second time, we've only done it twice, this is the John Padoritz, Jonah Goldberg, Rob Long Podcast coming to you from ricochet.com. If you're listening to it on National Review or Commentary, welcome. We are happy to have you. If you're listening to it on ricochet.com, welcome. If you don't know what ricochet.com is, please go to ricochet.com and join the conversation. It is the fastest growing, most interesting, most civil conversation on the web. We've got a bunch of great contributors, names you know, and a bunch of fantastic members who join in the conversation every day. We are fast becoming the place to go to know what is happening in American politics and culture. And we hope you enjoy this podcast, and we hope you will join Ricochet at ricochet.com. Online with with me is John Fedoritz in Manhattan. John, how are you? I am well. How are you guys? I'm uh, doing very well. The third of our trio is Jonah Goldberg in Washington, D.C. Jonah, how's it going? Uh, third per capita, but not by mass. <laughs> That's right. Well, it depends <laughs> on how you weigh. Uh, just on what planet we're weighing ourselves on. We don't have a title for this yet. but we, we thought, no, I just was, thought of one. I oh, just really? thought just of now? one. Just now? Just wow. That's okay. Yeah. Let me yeah. hear it. Three sumo wrestlers. Yeah. We have mass issues. The three of us have mass issues, let's okay. face it. I was, I was going to suggest that we, uh, uh, there's a, we say sometimes when you, you have an idea, we say uh, five, five more minutes, <laughs> which is usually shorthand for it. Just give it, give it a few more minutes. And every now and then when you see uh, uh, you know, a TV show or something or, or a movie with a really bad title or something, it's just Five more minutes on that title. Um, five more minutes, I'd say, on, on the three sumo wrestlers. But um, I like I like where you're going because I, as it is, I, I often wear the costume just to just to you know clean the house. It really um, doesn't follow the adage of lead with your strength, but we'll we'll, we'll come back. We'll, we'll, we'll circle around. <laughs> it is uh, the uh, Labor Day is now done and over. The summer is so not even not officially over, but basically over. Does it still work for you guys where, like, uh, I mean, it used to work for me until I moved to L.A., where you just naturally feel the rhythm of, like, you, 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 you both feel like you should be going back to school? I mean, I sometimes well, do that in September. Well, we have kids. Yeah. Yeah, our kids, our kids are, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, it, there's a lot of uh, going back to school anxiety in my household, so. Do you, do you still have uh, it yourself? Do you still feel it? Does it still make you think, I have to go back to school now? Uh, I, I don't feel that way, but I, you know, when my, when my daughter informs me that she doesn't want to get on the bus in the morning because her friend is now on a different bus, I feel it, I feel it at an entirely different kind of anxiety. Like, do I really have to go through all of this again? <laughs> yeah. Do I really have to go through all of it again? And the answer is yes. I yeah. When I, um, when I hear the back to school commercials, it it still just sort of slightly stews my bowels. I just I it I don't like it. It makes yeah. me uncomfortable. Um, yeah. But you know, uh, but the little yeah. brats have got to get out of that house. That you know that's true. And you know, and a friend of mine makes the point about that is that one of the most undersold points about uh, benefits of education of compulsory education is what he calls the prison effect. And that it's basically a place to lock up your kid for a big swath of the day so you can be a productive citizen. Mm-hmm. And um, what made me think about that was, one, you mentioned that, and two, um, the new sh- school strike in Chicago. Yes. Where hundreds of thousands of parents are scrambling to figure out to what to do with their kids today. 
Um, and that's you know it's it's basically they let they 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 open the doors to the prisons and let all the barbarians out, and that's a huge problem. <laughs> I and yet there's something about I'm going to be very unkind now since we're talking about that strike. My first thought about that strike, and and uh, uh, I'm probably completely this is completely harsh, was um, good. They deserve it. Uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel especially deserves it. You know, you want to if, if every time someone criticizes the teachers' unions, you talk about how they're against education, how they just don't want to. It's not for the kids. They're not educating the kids. Then those are all the politicians who deserve to have this disaster visited upon them. Um, and I realize that's a incredibly unkind thing to think for the poor parents of Chicago. But part of me feels like, oh, yeah, all right, all right, this is what you want. This is what you get. And the second thing is, I saw this. This picture is on Drudge this morning. Um, of, of the these angry teachers all wearing the yellow, the the red Chicago Teachers Union T-shirt and screaming and shouting and and I remember thinking to myself that that looks exactly like I think it would have looked if you had asked me an hour before I saw that photograph to describe the Chicago Teachers Union rally, it would have been a bunch of very very overweight women in red T-shirts with their faces you know in a rictus of fury. Uh, complaining about, uh, you know, we don't, uh, we, we need our ninth week of vacation or something. Or am I just being uh, too right wing? Not at all. Look, I think there are two, there are two interesting aspects of this. Beginning in 1983, uh, we decided nationally that, um, you know, education was a national crisis and that uh, education suddenly became a central issue. And it has been used by both sides in different ways, or it's been talked about by both sides in different ways. Teachers use, have used it to expand their power, to say we're the most important people on earth. You have to pay us more. You have to give us more. You have to, you have to, you know, let us have whatever it is that we need. You have to increase our budgets. And, you know, conservatives have used it to make a very potent case against government in the sense that you say, well, here's one example in which government in a most fundamental sense is not working and we need more private control over this because the public sector has now been proved to fail. And here we have a showdown in Chicago where you have these two sides now having their argument tested in real time. The teachers unions strong and powerful and potent after the, you know, after their celebration at the Democratic Convention come back and decide they're going to strike because they're so incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Rahm Emanuel and the political class and, and the electorate and the ordinary people are much, much, much less sentimentally attached to the notion that teachers are just the most wonderful people on earth and that teachers need to be celebrated because they've heard for 30 years that the educational system is failing their kids. So... It's an interesting showdown, it seems to me, and it's not clear which way it goes and what the politics are, because Chicago is a city in which there were five teacher strikes between, like, 1965 and 1983, 1984. They were constantly going out on strike, and it's been 25 years since there's been a strike because the politics shifted, because it was no longer considered the wisest thing for teachers unions to act like conventional, um, you know, conventional unions uh, that, you know, wanted stuff, public sector unions. And now, and now the Chicago teachers union is behaving like a public sector union, like any public sector union with no personal responsibility for the, for the kids in their, in their charge. And that's a pretty serious thing to show your hand on right now. 
You buy that, Joe? Well, Joe, Joe I mean, I, I, I guess what I mean is that's I, I get it, and I think John's right, but isn't part of you sort of thinking uh, Ram Emanuel should have to con- have to confront this? Why should why should yeah, always no, be? I mean, I'm the guy in the group with the goatee, so I, I'm, I'm more of a Leninist. <laughs> I'm more of a Leninist here, and I'm all for heightening the contradictions. And this is entirely their problem, right? It's a liberal city run by liberals, run by Democrats, a liberal, a core liberal interest group. I mean, these are like the Iroquois orcs to Mordor. I mean, they are the central shock troops of American (laughs) democratic liberalism, right? And, and if, if, if they want to rise up against one of the towers in Chicago and, and go against Rahm Emanuel right after the democratic convention, um, right after Barack Obama has pledged his fealty to them in a state that Mitt Romney's probably not going to carry anyway, I say, yo, great, you know, and even I think even more, even more. The right, secretary, right. Obama's secretary of education, made his reputation as the as the superintendent of the Chicago schools. So if the yeah, Chicago I mean, schools fall entirely to pieces, like there is Arnie Duncan sitting there, and you know, this is his, this is the thing that he supposedly so wanted to race for the top. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, oh, know, what a great accomplishment! The word the word defeatism, you know, these days simply means sort of feeling like a, a pessimist and that you're going to lose and all of that. Mm-hmm. Sort of a Charlie Brown attitude, but it actually has its roots in Leninism. Just to stay on this Leninism thing, and defeatism was part of the you know the worse the better attitude that the best thing that could happen to the Bolsheviks is for the Russians to lose World War One, and it was an actual strategy, and. Uh, while I have nothing but sympathy for these kids trapped in this absolutely crappy school system in Chicago, and I have nothing but sympathy for the parents. Well, I have some, I have a lot of sympathy, but not complete sympathy for the parents because they elected the right. government and the leadership that they've got. Um, but I have sympathy for the kids. But you know, some places they just don't get better until they get worse, and um, this is one of those things. And I hope it, I hope it works out as at least a teaching moment. You know, for everybody. <laughs> wow, you just used the phrase "teaching moment." Did you know that you were going to use it when you used it, or did you just did it just come right out now that it's part of your lexicon? It's the depth of my sort of. <laughs> it, it, I how bad that. it is over there. Yeah, yeah. No, I had no idea it was coming out of my mouth when I said it. Did either one of you guys watch the conventions? I mean, I know you both watched the conventions. I mean, in terms I was of, there. I watched almost every minute. I yeah, so John saw more of them than I did, but I yeah. was there. Were you, and both of them, Jonah. What? Uh, and I don't really mean this in any uh, argumentative way, but why on earth did you go? <laughs> um, well, as a conservative, you should be able to at least appreciate the power of tradition and inertia. Um, okay. Uh, I've been to all of the Democratic and Republican conventions since 88 except for two. And um, so you kind of feel like you don't want to break up your string of them. Uh-huh. So it's like and Comic-Con for you. A little bit. And... Um, you know, National Review was flying the flag. We went, you know, as oh, right. sort of National Review. And um, it was – they were both awful, but like Trotsky's families – I'm just going to – like Tolstoy's families, you know. You are. You, you've got, you've wow. got commies of brain. You just – I do. I, I, was, I was reading up on some <laughs> other stuff for a different thing. And I, so I've got all these Bolsheviks in my brain. Um, Tolstoy Trotsky. It's, it's, it, it's, almost, it's, it's, it's almost like all the complaints about neocons being hidden Trotskyites are true. Um, so anyway, yeah. I, 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 um, uh, Tampa was just simply awful in 
in sort of material ways. It was so, Tampa's not Florida's best city. Let's put it that no, way. No. And it has that's a great already steakhouse. Got a great, that's right, famous Burns. Great, great Burns. Yeah, yeah. Everyone talked about Burns, and um, I am convinced. You know how like real estate places, uh, like shady real estate agents, they will take people and show them the apartment when the train isn't going by. <laughs> right. Uh, I am convinced they brought Michael Steele down there like in February when it was like 70 degrees and no humidity and they, you know, and they brought them to the strip clubs and none of the boob glitter stuck to their faces and right. it was just beautiful weather and you go there in August and it's like a Saigon brothel. It's just awful. <laughs> and um, you're sweating everywhere you go. You sweat. <laughs> Saigon brothel. It's, it's incredibly humid with a lot of uh, pro-military, uh, clean-cut Americans. Yeah, I mean, it was, there you go. It was, it was it, but I mean, you felt like you were Barton Fink everywhere. And um, the, 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 the sort of tropical rainstorms that would come in wouldn't cool you off, but you would still feel wetter when they stopped. It right. It was so humid. And uh, the security was abysmal. I mean, it, was the, it was the most ridiculous conser- security. And even the 2004 convention in New York. I went to that one. That was crazy. Anything like this security. It was just insane. Um, uh, but I guess that's not what people are really interested. Oh, and the Democratic one was just, there were just all these awful people walking around. Um, and you overheard all of these terrible, terrible conversations. Um, one of the only sort of in, really interesting sociological things about the Democratic convention, though, was I spent a lot of time just sort of walking around, soaking it all in, listening to people say terrible things in conversation. But the... The, one of the more interesting sociological things was that after a while, I noticed that on average, the, the, in terms of delegates and stuff, the black people there were so much more polite than the white people, just in terms of holding doors open and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I tried to figure out why that would be until it occurred to me, well, of course, none of the white delegates at the Democratic convention are going to be from the South, <laughs> um, or at least very <laughs> few true. of them. That's but, true. But, all of the black delegates are going to be from the – it's not fair because I'm sure they're black delegates from the north. But it's going to be disproportionate. And so I realized it wasn't so much that the black people were all that much more polite than the white people. It's that the southern people, wherever they were from, were just so much more polite than, than the northeast. That's definitely people. true. That is definitely true. Uh, uh, John, so hearing all that, do you regret it? You, you wish you had been, de- been there? <laughs> well, I, 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 I actually love going to conventions and I – this time for you know sort of for family reasons um i i love them for reasons that are the reason that everybody in america should hate them and wish them destroyed because they are basically now uh simply an in gathering of the of the news media i mean there are there are there are three or four times as many reporters and journalists as there are delegates and uh and so if you like me have worked at six or seven or eight different news organizations in your career, it's like old home week. You're walking around. It's like, hey, Howard, how are you? How, look, remember we were here in 84. You know, there's a lot of that. And, you know, then let's go have a drink. What have you been doing? Oh, you got grandkids now. You know, it's a lot of that. And, um, and then, you know, you go on the floor and you see these politicians who are very eager to see somebody they might recognize as a journalist to have a few jawboning minutes. And I, I, it's fantastic fun. I didn't go, and for the other reason I didn't go was very prophetic, and, and, and Jonah went through this, which is it occurred to me, particularly about Charlotte, I would have gone as a credentialed 
confirm with the New York Post. And so the New York Post is a not necessarily in very good order uh, with uh, the Democratic no. Party. True. And True. B, generally speaking, the Democrats are less organized about this stuff than the Republicans are. And Charlotte is a small city without a lot of hotel rooms. And that in the end, we, I was going to end up in some hotel room 30 miles from the convention center in a city that was ill-equipped to deal with you know, massive amounts of traffic and that sort of thing. And I gather that Jonah was in a hotel room washing bed bugs. Various people had to flee to other states <laughs> to, find a, to find a place where they could go where they wouldn't be bitten alive. Um, and so that, that is actually something that I thought might happen. As for the heat, though, Jonah, you know, they're always awful. I mean, Newton, That's true. I, I remember Dallas in 1984, which was the first one that I went to, it was 115 degrees for but three days. But it was a dry heat. Yeah, it's dry right. I have never in my life. It was, it was like, it's, I've <laughs> never in my life. New Orleans was awful in 88. And Houston, the only thing, Los Angeles in 2000 was great. And New yeah. York in 2004 was great. And San Diego, it was okay in 2000. But every other one has been a sauna or a, you know, or a steam room. And, you know, basically it just drives you inside, which is okay. But now with the security, it's very hard to get inside. So you have the, you know, spectacle of Tom Brokaw fainting on, <laughs> fainting <laughs> on the set of Morning Joe because it took him five hours to get into yeah, the – because he's so dehydrated. The, <laughs> well, the funny thing is in Tampa, I was stuck right – I was the guy right behind Tom Brokaw, and we were in the sun baking for 40 – you know, for a half hour just, just with the sun – coming down on us and it was just, the whole thing i mean it was just such a physically unpleasant experience right. but you say did he you know but i just want to point out that the greatest generation lived through weather much worse than that <laughs> yes <laughs> right i think it's time for us to pay tribute actually no it's worse now because it's global warming yeah. oh I mean, the weather they went through, there were the mud and, you know, <laughs> well, and... Well, the mud is a separate now episode, Tom Brokaw's had some sacrifice. Yeah. He's he... now experienced some of the sacrifice of the greatest generation in his... That's a very... But maybe he collapsed and hit the deck and um, suddenly he could pronounce his L's. That's all I need to do. <laughs> um... When he hit the well, deck, I, all these marbles just rolled out of his mouth. Right. So strange. Hey, look what's look what rolled out of my mouth. Wait a minute, I can say L's now. I look what rolled out of my red mouth. Leather, yellow leather. <laughs> red, red leather, yellow leather. Uh, red leather. Yeah. yeah. Um. I uh, I I went to the two thousand four. Yeah. I went to the two thousand four and um, in New York, and I was I was it was a miserable experience because I'm not a journalist by any description, and I was there and I didn't really know how to ha- how to work it out. And I was also I, I was I had to do these weekly uh, these daily um, little three minute commentaries for the local NPR station here because um, I'm the only Republican they know. They thought they better have one, <laughs> and and they always and I would like you know I, the first day I tried to get in and I got in. I walked around. I didn't like there's nothing to do and I didn't know anybody and I thought maybe I would just get a you know they there'd be a place and then I walked in one one the next day and uh, I just sort of stood. In front of the, I couldn't. I didn't want to make it all the way to the El Cheapo seats where National Review was, but but in the in the in the nice section, there, the Weekly Standard had a little uh, little area, work area. I just stood there until I ran into I think Andy Ferguson or 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 uh, or, 
or or, or Fred Barnes, somebody I knew, and they, they said, "Oh, well, you can come right on here. You want a diet coke?" And like I hung out there for the afternoon. And then on the third and fourth day, I just didn't even go at all. I just would come in sideways to do just to do my recording and leave. But every day I would did I did the little commentary that our local guy here would say. So what's the sense here as you walk around the floor? What's the <laughs> sense? And I would give him what I thought the sense was from watching TV because I was like, "I'm not gonna go on the floor. It's too hot. It's too <laughs> too many people. I don't know anybody. What am I gonna do? Walk up to people and ask them what the sense is? Forget it." Uh, and I suspect that I'm not the only terrible journalist out there. I might be the I worst. I just want to tell you, I, I have I to tell you my anecdote from... All right. Go ahead. Okay, just quick anecdote from 2004, because neither one of you had the inestimable experience of being interviewed at the 2004 convention by Triumph the Comic Insult Dog. <laughs> no, wow. And it wow. was. It happens, I know Robert Smigel, the the genius behind Triumph, the insult comic dog, and he saw me walking around. He grabbed me, and he said, John Padaritz! And then he proceeded to do 10 minutes of fat jokes. WMD in your stomach! Was that Is it true? Is it true that you ate the deficit? You know? So, so that was really the highlight of 2004 uh, for me um, at the at the convention. But you know, I do want to say I watched every minute of both conventions on C-SPAN, and um, I think you should bow before me because wasting uh, this much time uh, on a, something with absolutely no purpose is 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 what journalists used to do. It used to be a noble uh, profession. Yeah. A journalist sat. Endless hearings on the Hill and watch them and no one knew what was going on and they filed a report and nobody paid attention. This has now become – conventions are utterly and entirely meaningless because nothing happens at them. Speeches are given from 5 o'clock onward. Um, you pay attention to them. You watch them. You're interested in them. They tell you – and then basically it's as though they never happened because it's – Conventions exist for the purpose of creating a political moment for one person. So all this other stuff we talk about, oh, there was so much talk about abortion or, you know, oh, there was a fight over Ron Paul's delegates and this stuff happened with, uh, with you know, with God in Jerusalem. And all of that is happening so far away from the attention of anybody. And even when the time comes that people are paying attention you know, the number of people who are paying, who pay attention now to one hour a night right. is a third to a fifth of what it was 20 years ago. I mean, literally, you know, 20 million people or something watched the last night of each, uh, you know, with, with uh, Romney and, uh, and, and Obama. Thank God. And, you know, that would have been 80, 90, 100 million people 20 years ago because well, it would have been on all networks. There would have been nothing right. else to watch and people passively would have seen it. But thank so, you. Speaking of somebody who's got a show on the air at ten o'clock on Thursday night, I can tell you that <laughs> our, two of our biggest nights were uh, uh, Romney's speech and Obama's speech. I think you know people. The audience is watching TV; they're just not watching that. Uh, yeah, they're watching TV. They're watching plenty of TV. I mean, that's that that's the that's the story. They're happier watching. I mean, I'm sure Sullivan and Sons got close to the same rating. Uh, no, Obama, the, the Obama speech. Yeah, Obama speech. We did. We did great. That was the uh, our last Thursday was one of our better nights. Yeah. So I, I just think the oddity of this then is the conventions, which exist solely for the purpose of creating a political moment, 
everything that happens in the five hours beforehand, it's like this, you know, if they're not seen, they don't exist because they don't have an independent, ver they, they're not about policy. The platform reflects no reality that any politician, that the president is actually going to pursue once he's in office and never has. You know, uh, wonks and lunatics are very eager to get their, their voices heard and their statements on, you know, on record as part of the platform. Platforms hold presidents nothing. They, they have no independent value. And now this event has no independent value, which used to be broadcast. When we were kids, it was on seven hours, eight hours a day. They yeah, broadcast right, right. conventions during they canceled soap operas to broadcast the convention. <laughs> My God, you know, they broke I mean, into so, the soaps. <laughs> think about it. Civilization were, gone mad. Think about it. this was a, this was a well, major this was a major I, these major American political events, and now they are minor American political events. But nothing you know, happens in them anyway. But they don't decide anything. I mean, part of the problem, or maybe even maybe this is a, a, a feature, not a bug, is that everybody seems to be their own pundit. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how many people I've heard randomly uh, passing them in the street or going to the coffee shop here around the corner of my house, just just passing, hearing them say things like, "Well, I think he did what he needed to do," yeah. and "Well, I, I you know I I think it was probably really good to fire up his base." And I don't know which candidate they were talking about. It didn't matter. They, 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 I don't need to hear from pundits anymore. I already know what they have. I, don't, I already know their phrases. I'm just going to use them. I think he did. Sort of like, yeah, go ahead. It's sort of like you're, uh, the, the, the chicken your focus group the last time. It was, and I think my yeah. demographic will like this. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. Everyone's sort of a pundit you know, and thinks that, that, yeah. that they're not the target. And in this right. election, maybe they're not. I mean, I got to say, um, I, I, I'm enjoying going to conventions less, and I and I'm valuing them more. Um, it seems to me that as everything in the media becomes so disparate, so sort of balkanized, and all the rest, that um, you know, having some central moment, some moment where you know we're in a two-party system, whether we like it or not, they are de facto arms of the permanent government. Uh -huh. And giving each party a chance to make its pitch to the American people once every four years is is not to me an incredibly onerous burden. And it seems to me that that if if anything, right, the media should work harder to cover these things. And I got to say though, there's this enormous hypocrisy that drives me crazy. In that, um, you know, f for what John, like forty years now since what seventy two, seventy six. The, the punditocracy has been whining, nostalgic, and, and saying these things are so scripted and they're run by consultants and nothing spontaneous happens. And there are no real moments. Yeah. And at each convention, we had a real moment. We had the Clint Eastwood moment, and we had at the, at the Republican convention and at the Democratic yeah. convention, we had the platform moment. The Clint Eastwood moment, immediately, every sort of gitchy goo, thumb-sucking, Charlie Rose-watching uh, you know, Tom Brokaw worshiping pundit out there said this was a disaster. How dare they? They went off script. This was a mess. This was malpractice. And as I thought at the time, the actual viewers loved it and thought it was mm -hmm. fine. And, and all the sort of pundit class and consultant class sucked their thumbs and, and, went and whined about it. Um, and then at the Democratic convention, you actually had the the floor delegates, and I was there, I saw that happen. I was sitting with a prominent liberal journalist, and he was even more adamant about it than I was, um, that the nose had it about putting mm -hmm. God and Jerusalem back into that platform. Right. And you had three times the delegates renounced God, like Peter. 
And um, and the no, they weren't renouncing God. They were announcing the process that renounced God. They were announcing the process that would not allow them to renounce God. Fair enough, right? But <laughs> I just right. think a, you need to get this very accurate because I am giving you a partly true on that, and or perhaps <laughs> partly false. It could be partly true. It could be partly. Yeah. false. Obviously, anything one, that is okay. partly true is also partly false. Mm-hmm. But immediately, Mark Alpert and all these guys immediately start saying, oh, this wasn't a big deal. I don't think there's any media bias and that we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I listened to like the NPR coverage about it, and they would say, well, they had to put God in Jerusalem back in, and no one covered the fact that they steamrolled their own delegates to do it. Um, and this mm-hmm. was an actual moment. This was the moment that these people have been craving for 40 years. I'm not saying it's hugely important. I'm not saying it in any way transcends anything beyond mere, mere symbolism, but it was, it was a convention moment that was deeply symbolic, and, and these guys wrote it off because it wasn't fitting. It didn't, the narrative of that didn't help Obama. Well, look, there's two things about, A, the Clint Eastwood thing was a genuinely fascinating, unsettling, interesting moment. So it was, it was, it was interesting, and of course... Had he come out, had it been the reverse, and he had been the guy speaking before Obama and had said, well, I don't know, I mean, here's an empty chair, uh, you know, uh, say, empty chair, uh, you're so rich, where are your tax returns? I somehow doubt that Mark Huge. Helper and, and the pundit class would have said that this was a horrible, oh, this was embarrassing. Romney is an empty chair. Great analogy. Romney is the empty chair. They would, there, would, there would be a yeah, our, our, our bet noir, Tina Brown, would have the empty chair on the cover of Newsweek oh, yeah. the next week, right. the incredible empty chair, Romney's collapsing campaign, and all of that. So that, that is just classic standard bias revealing itself. Um, and I think you're right about the, you're right about the God and, and Jerusalem moment. Um, but of course, had it been that that would have been nationally broadcast, nobody could have denied the importance of it. The fact that it wasn't nationally broadcast creates the conditions under which it was easy to say it didn't matter. And also, yeah. Um, yeah. isn't it amazing? Uh, the Democrats had a, pro- have a, had a problem with their platform and their convention with God and Jews, which is mm-hmm. what you, Republicans usually have trouble with. You know, it's usually Pat Buchanan, you know? It's usually somebody there saying something, and all like, oh, God, I wish that guy wouldn't talk. But instead, we had the, you know, the most, probably the most prominent evangelical politician in America, Mike Huckabee, stood up there and said something which, if anybody in the press knew anything about uh, evangelical Christianity, would, would realize how in bananas and unpredictable that must have been. I mean, if you told me four years ago Mike Huckabee would endorse Mitt Romney for president and say, hey, we go to different churches, but that's okay, that's, that's, that's crazy talk for an evangelical. That shows – that's an enormous change right. in, in the culture of – the culture of evangelicals and certainly uh, um, you know, a conservative Christianity. But to embrace by the way, Mormonism is pretty amazing. Yeah. By the way, another aspect of the conventions that makes them so so uh, interesting and useless and, is that it is by design, not by not by uh, result. And this is what people don't seem to understand: that the that the candidate is giving one of the least interesting speeches. In other words, you get the wives. The wives always hit it out of the park, right? It's since since Liddy Dole, I think, or Barbara Bush. You know, since Liddy yeah. Dole in '96, the wives always hit it out of the park. And then you have a really good keynote, you know, Obama in 2004, or obviously Clinton this year. Um, 
you know, making sort of a big splash. And the candidates themselves are driven under these circumstances to give careful, you know, calibrated speeches because they actually have to stand there and try to think about what they're going to say that will appeal to this increasingly small number of people who don't know who they're going to vote for, you know, at the beginning of right. September. And, and who are result, probably, I hope, watching Sullivan and Son instead of <laughs> conventions anyway. That's right. But so Mitt Romney's speech that I categorically designed to say nothing provocative, nothing provocative. All he said was, President Obama said he's going to raise the oceans. I'm going to get you a job, right? And then Obama said, I'm a nice guy. Give me another chance. That those were, to boil down those speeches, that is what those speeches said. I had a really hard job. I didn't do it as well as I could have. They're crazy. Give me another chance. I'm married <laughs> to a really great woman. Give me another chance. So the only thing that matters at these conventions is the speech that is given by the candidate and the candidate now is driven to do something uninteresting. So this is a perverse fact of political life. We're going back to the 19th century. It would be better off, it would be better if they never said anything. You know, the way presidential candidates in the 19th century did right. not speak because it was thought to be unseemly. So that the Clinton speech was a throwback to the 19th century in which you have a you know, tub-thumping, stem-winder of a demagogic... What, very appealing, demagogic, long address, saying whatever he wants to say under any conditions with no connection to reality or the truth. And, and the candidate just stands there mutely right. and takes all the glory. And so if Obama had a bump from the convention, it was Michelle and Clinton, right? because we know the Obama speech was a dud. So, so that's, what, that's what Romney didn't get. He didn't have a Clinton speech. He had an Ann speech. He had the Ryan speech, which was interesting, but wasn't, you know, dazzling. And then he had his own dull. And so the only interesting thing was Eastwood. But Eastwood was just too peculiar. Oh, to, I don't know. You know I, I think Eastwood was great. He was great, but he was weird. It was weird. It wasn't like, great, I'm going to go out and vote for Romney now. You know, I don't know. I, think, like, I, I, I don't know about that. I think it, 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 did, a, it did an amazing thing. It made fun of President Obama. And that is breaking some serious ice. I, think I, that's, I thought it was that's true, but I, I was one of the, believe me, I was one of the two people on Twitter, my 500-person feed, because I don't think Jonah was on them, who said, wow, that was really something. I think people are going to really like that, you know? Meanwhile, I'm getting, I'm getting emails from a friend of mine who was backstage saying that, you know, the Romney senior brass was having heart attacks while it was going on. So, you know. Actually, uh, I, tweeted, I tweeted at the time that, it's going to cost a lot of money to update all those dictionaries to put a picture of Clint Eastwood next to the word badass. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought, I, I thought I, look, I mean, the one concession I'm willing to make uh, happily to the critics of Eastwood is that if it had been a little better rehearsed, a little more fluid, he would have been a little more comfortable. I think he could have, you know, scored all of the same points, still seemed natural and authentic, and no one would have said, Hey, you know, if he stammered more, um, it would have been better. You know, I mean, it, it, it was a little too natural, I thought. But at the same time, right. you know, I, I think that, it, you know, it was obviously going to be the water cooler conversation for everybody. And it broke a major sort of Hollywood taboo. And um, I love his interview. The, the only interview he's given is with the local Carmel. Yeah, the, the pine cone. Yeah, with the pine cone. <laughs> um, 
And it's an interesting interview to read. And he says, you know, yeah, it was all yeah. deliberate. And, and he wanted to, everything so scripted and polished. He wanted to come across natural. And I, I, I kind of buy it, you know. Listen, every stand-up in the country, every stand-up in the country is, 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 was dazzled. You know, I mean, you had this weird Bill Maher. Bill Maher on the one side and Jackie Mason on the other both saying, that is what stand-up comedy is at its best. It is, yeah. it is, a, it is a, it's something that appears to be entirely spontaneous where you go out on a limb and then you hit the joke, bam, 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 bam. Having said that, it was peculiar in part because you didn't know it was a stand-up comedy routine until halfway through, yeah. and because he was teetering on the verge of, because it wasn't worse, because he hadn't thought it through, it was teetering on the verge of disaster. Like, you know, when he made the joke, of, when he made the implicit joke about uh, the president um, doing uh, sexual acts to himself, <laughs> you could imagine somebody like, that he could have slipped and cursed, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just saying, if he'd done that, it would have been game over. That's why I say that it's a little weird. That's why it would have been better. On the other hand, he couldn't have done it if it was more rehearsed because he wouldn't have done it that way. So who, who knows? But having said that, I think it is still a very interesting fact that, you know, Eastwood, let's put it this way, Eastwood and Clinton make the memorable presentations at the convention, and Romney and Ryan... And oh, and Obama do not. So, what are they for anyway? Right. <laughs> you know. Right. I mean, and you know, this brings up an interesting thing about the debates that are coming. I mean, you know, what is Romney going to do for ninety minutes if he's not willing to say anything? <laughs> That's right. Well, well, he'll still he'll say he's put himself in a position where he uh, he can say, "Oh, Mr. President." You're such a great guy, but we're also disappointed. We're just very disappointed. And the president says, you are a child molester. And then he says, I'm so disappointed in you for saying that. It's really very disappointing. I love women. Love women. Love them. <laughs> women! Maybe, <laughs> maybe, he'll, <laughs> maybe he'll sing. That was Remember that? Hey, women, I love women. <laughs> women are just so lovable. Women, women, women. Women in Ohio. Ohio. Ohio women. Ohio. Well, I don't know about Ohio. Ohio, they may they, they may not yeah. they may not be able to waste time uh, mentioning Ohio. <laughs> I was sorely tempted during all that women's stuff. I was sorely <laughs> tempted to to uh, to tweet that um that line from Blazing Saddles. Hey, where all the white women at? And I, I just I thought better of it, but uh, it sort of was the theme of the entire thing. Is you know, hey, where all the white women? Because you know? they're not going after African American women. They're not going after Hispanic women. They just want. White chicks from the Ohio River yeah. Valley or whatever. <laughs> exactly right. Um, Iahoga County. Who, 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 who voted for... Uh, this is what Romney should do during his first debate. I'm just going to mention the names call out. of the town. Yeah. Sandusky. <laughs> I hear you. Let me hear you out there. Town. Yeah. yeah. How about those mud hens? Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's a great town over there. Yeah, just, yeah just, I just want to get a, just want to a shout out to Springfield Lions. We had a really great game on, on Friday night. It's yeah, actually an old, uh, it's an old uh, comedian's thing. They they call it uh, it's called a sweat act. And in a sweat act, really, all you do, like you, you know, you sing four songs, you tell ten jokes, the same four songs, ten jokes, and you spend the rest of the time interacting with the crowd and telling them how beautiful and wonderful they are, and mentioning towns surrounding those towns. 
uh, for the for the for the applause. Yeah. Uh, and and then right. at the end, you know, an hour and a half, you know, you're drenched in sweat, your dinner jacket soaked, and you say, "Thank you very much. You guys are beautiful." And you go back, you go back to your dressing room, and you pack right. everything up, and you go to the next. Or it's thing. like that. It's like the Simpsons where uh, Spinal Tap played in Springfield, and right. uh, was it Nigel Hubbins? Uh, He's he's doing his shtick and he has to look on the back of his card. There's an index card there that says Springfield on it, and <laughs> and, and and he does. And we're going to show them that 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 spring that in Springfield they can rock, not like in Shelbyville. And the crowd just goes wild. You know? <laughs> um. Uh, I uh, speaking of show business, I I did something came across yesterday. I read. Have you ever heard of the, the website lettersofnote.com? Uh, they're just like people's letters and notes that have somehow been yes. Yeah. And, and there's a fantastic letter from Frank Sinatra to George Michael of Wham fame. Of Wham fame <laughs> in 1990, and it's uh, I guess George Michael had been. Uh, Can you uh, say something like, "I love how you get all the broads." <laughs> no, it wasn't that like it was uh well it's close. Um George Michael said been a bit of paper complaining about the fame and how tough it is and how he's got uh uh you know ambivalent feelings about being so famous and uh and Sinatra sends it's about a six paragraph letter and Sinatra sends and the middle paragraph is I just just got cuz I love it cuz he's Sinatra's basically saying, "Hey, hey dude. Um fame is what we're all after. It's what you're all after. You stop complaining." Uh, you know, be com- like every show business guy because like you start complaining when they don't show up to your show. <laughs> and uh, he actually wrote these words, which I thought uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on them as terms of just in general life philosophy. Come on, George, loosen up, swing man, dust off those gossamer wings and fly yourself to the moon of your choice and be grateful to carry the baggage we've all had to carry since those lean nights of sleeping on buses and helping the driver unload the instruments. And then. Uh, and no more talk about the tragedy of fame. The tragedy of fame is when no one shows up and you're singing to the cleaning lady in some empty joint that hasn't seen a paying customer since St. Swithin's Day. And you're nowhere <laughs> near that. You're top dog of the top rung of a tall ladder called stardom, which in Latin means thanks to the fans who were there when it was lonely. Um, I love the letter, but I also feel like um, I would like to send this letter – in uh, May, I think April, May, June, June 2013, to uh, to a Barack Obama, who's uh, after the the profile, the New York Times Sunday Magazine profile uh, of him after he's out of office and wandering around Chicago. Uh, you know, the, a, a, a a lonely, uh, a, a bitter Barack Obama reflects on fame, and and that's what I, I think I'm going to say. Hey, Barack, swing. Um, <laughs> it was okay. You, you did great. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I don't really know why I read this to you, but I just, I just, I read it yesterday, and I thought I, I just want to, I just want to read that out loud. I kind of, I didn't use the Sinatra voice because I thought that was sort of disrespectful to Phil Hartman. But I thought I would just read it out loud. Go ahead. I, well, first of all, I when you said that, that he wrote a letter to to George Michael, I thought it was going to say, you know, hey chickadee, you're a good looking lady, but I got to tell you. <laughs> You got to grow out your hair and stop wearing men's clothes because you're starting to look like a dude. Um, uh, but um, I, I think it's a fantastic letter. I, I think it has so little. I think the Venn diagram of, of of a life lesson for me is is so little overlap. I mean, I mean, you just don't have that kind of fame in in our world. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think every everybody who writes and does the stuff that we do. 
um, wants some recognition and, and doesn't necessarily shun fame of one sort or another, but it's not really why you do this stuff. Um, and at least not in that way. It's a nice, it's nice when it's nice fame and it sucks when it's bad fame, you know, but, um, I think every celebrity on earth should they want it. There is nothing worse than hearing people complain about getting it what it is that they wanted. Nobody told them to want it. Nobody told them that they needed to have it. I actually think that there is a lot to be said now for the fact that it is a great double-edged sword to get you know, a very famous, very young in a way that mm-hmm. it, it wasn't once before because because now, you know, since there is no zone, not only no zone of privacy anymore, but no zone of uh, reticence in terms of writing about the things that people, you know, do, um, everybody who gets, you know, rich and famous young is going to go through a moment at which their character and their actions are slaughtered viciously and, you know, without any, you know, any hint of sort of, you know, grace or kindness or modesty or anything like that. And, you know, it raises questions. It always raises questions about child stars. You ask a question about, so there's Michael Jackson, you know, dies at, dies at 50, you know, having had it possible for him to um, fulfill the, uh, I think, extremely dark uh, fantasies, you know, that other people may only have been able to fantasize He's 50 years old. Go back 40 years in a time machine and ask whether his life would have been better had Diana Ross or whoever never found him and, you know, his brothers in Gary, in Gary, Indiana. And, you know, had they simply grown up in Gary, Indiana, sang in the church choir, married, you know what I mean? Maybe (laughs) not. Maybe so. It's hard to tell. But every single child, it's almost the case that of almost every single child star, you would have to say it probably would have been better had they not ever gone into show business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can just imagine Michael right? Jackson and Gary, Indiana, you know, <laughs> working like a, like a young man working. Would you like fries with that? Welcome well, no, but, I mean, he would have, but he would have been working as a young black man, which is just not, you know, what well, he, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. Turned into, <laughs> right. you know, it's a total, a very different parallel universe we're talking about here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is very true. That is very true. That's the yes. the sliding doors theory. Um, now, speaking of the fall, I don't know we're not, but I just because it's the autumn, uh, everything starts again. Uh, you know, the, the uh, fall TV season, theater, movies, all that stuff. Uh, was a terrible box office, or I shouldn't say terrible. I say bipolar box office, uh, theatrical uh, movie release box office for the summer. Uh, there's a lot of jittery nervousness out here in, in Hollywood. A lot of big movies died. A lot of other movies just never quite took off. Uh, it was the worst possible outcome for people because it, there were some outright bombs. But actually worse than bombs are the lackluster, uh, the, the, the t- titles that, that don't actually do as well as they should have or they kind of come and they kind of go and they do okay and they eke out a, some kind of win but they don't really work. Um, and, of course, I've just spent the past uh, week catching up <clears throat> to the last episode of Breaking Bad, which, John, I know you don't watch. But, um, but Jonah, you do watch it, right? I do. And um, I know Bob doesn't, John doesn't want us to get too deep in the weeds on it, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's truly one of the great dark shows. And in many ways, it's one of the most conservative shows we've seen in a generation because all, basically it's, it's sort of like the movie A Simple Plan. The basic message is – the second you start doing wrong, the wrongness builds on itself. 
And a lot of these sort of simple bourgeois values actually have enormous storehouse of wealth in them, and I think is great. Um, but Rob, if you want to get your point off about uh, breaking bags, then it reminds me I want to tell a, a somewhat unrelated story. No, I just want to say that it's one of those things where the good news, just to get back to the Sinatra thing, the good news is it's uh, whether you've seen it or not, Brian Cranston's doing this fantastic performance. He's, he's been given this opportunity to play this character for five, six years and to do it. Uh, there's this full arc of a character, this almost amazingly novel length uh, transition from, frankly, good to evil in a way that was completely unpredictable. Um, no one is offering anybody those roles in feature films or you know, it's really only long-form television um, the way it is now, uh, which I think is sort of incredible. But also that that's a guy who is not, was not a star. He was uh, the, played the dad on a single-camera comedy. He was funny when Malcolm in the Middle for a long time. Um, and he got this part, and he and he just sort of. He's also Chris Watley on Seinfeld. That's right. That's right. Um, so, but but uh, but this is not a guy who anybody you know if he if he if he wanted to be in a feature film nobody would you know he wouldn't going to cast him as the star of a feature film not going to cast him as a, as a supporting player in a feature film he just wasn't part of that aristocracy and yet first of all now he is which shows that if you actually you know you make the right choices of material you can do amazing things but also. Uh, it's uh, this is actually a, a a a win for the sort of disruptions in the system that 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 uh, the American people the po- the the public will watch will sit home and watch Breaking Bad or some other TV show or they'll get you know a full season of something and watch it and not go to the movies, um, which uh, which I can only hope will punish the movies to becoming better. But maybe I'm wrong. The 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 creator of it was his name Vince Gilligan is that his name? Right. Gilligan. Yeah. 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 He had this great explanation. He says, I set out to make a TV show where you watch in real time as Mr. Chips turns into Scarface. And um, right. that really is the story arc of the thing. And it's fascinating to see who become the sort of the, the moral characters and who gets seduced by evil and who doesn't. And it, I, I think it's a fantastic show. But um, uh, so I think it's such a fantastic show that I was driving to North Carolina a couple of weeks ago to pick up my daughter from sleepaway camp. And I listen to a lot of podcasts of various kinds, including the Ricochet podcast. Oh, there and you so go. I, I downloaded um, uh, there was some pop culture podcast on NPR that I'd never heard of, and I can't remember the name of. But I saw that it did a whole episode on Breaking Bad, and I figured, okay, I'll listen to that. I got a seven-hour drive, blah 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 blah. blah. And uh, so, in the course of listening to it or another one of these shows, um, the host of the show told the story about how she had gone to the. TV Critics Association fall meeting or whatever. <laughs> Which is awful. It's the and, worst excuse me, I was, was once a member of the TV Critics Association, so <laughs> I don't want to hear any guff from the two of you. <laughs> it, it's the worst event ever. It is terrible. It is just... Hey, so I, I don't know anything about it, whatever, and I'm, I'm listening, and the highlight of the trip, and I'm, I'm butchering the exact words because I, you know, it was a couple weeks ago or whatever, but I just, I've been dining out on this for a while now. The, the, the highlight of it was um, on one of the panels was the executive producer of the In Search of Bigfoot show that's like on Animal Planet or one of those shows, right? And one of the critics made reference to some long-forgotten TV show about mermaids. And the executive producer just went livid and did the whole, how dare you, sir, compare something as serious and as scientifically grounded as Bigfoot to mermaids. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and just it was the whole sort of indignant. You don't know what you're talking about. You're anti-science. Don't you know that um, 
what's the name of the chick who lives with the gorillas? Oh, Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall. No, believes- no, J- Diane Fossey. Who is it? Whatever. Diane. Diane Goodall. Diane Goodall. Yeah, Bob Fossey. <laughs> Jane, Jane Fossey. Yeah, <laughs> Bob Fossey. Elsa, uh, Elsa the Lion. <laughs> and I, I just love getting on your high horse because, like, you're totally into Bigfoot, but you think mermaids are ridiculous. I just, I, I. I love that kind of. Well, thing. it happens now here. You find a lot. But you know, used to be. I'm an old man. I used to be when it's when you started. Like you knew everybody. You knew every show that was on. You knew, right? And you knew the shows that well, were on. That, you is, that, that is that is an absolutely amazing thing. As somebody who was, as Jonah was, utterly pop culture obsessed in the 1970s, I literally knew every episode of. I would practically memorize TV Guide every week. <laughs> so, like, my, my parents would say, what's on tonight? And I would say, on Mannix, you know, Peggy is taken captive, <laughs> taken prisoner by the mob. Man- you know, like, I could do that sort of thing. And, and now... Oh, that was good is, Mannix, is, by the way. I know. My, you know, my, my wife works. And every now and then she'll say to me, have you seen the whitest kids you know? And I'll say, what on earth is that? You know, I used to know everything. And television is now... It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, come and go on Fox, and then we, I, I lit, there was a sitcom about a guy sitting in traffic for four weeks last year, based on an Israeli format or something. It was right. called Traffic Light, and basically traffic it's people light, yeah. sitting in traffic. But I mean, like then I look on something. It's like you know, eight thirty on Thursdays. Getting on. What is that? Getting on. <laughs> it's a huge hit. No, whatever you know, going. As what? Sorry, they're, they're not as memorable as uh, Mr. T and Tina. Our, I know, but, you know, there is this bar is really interesting because let's say you really like the show. Are you actually today? You know, there's a reason they call these things like the Dick Van Dyke show or, you know, the so-and-so show because right. at least you remember somebody's name. Now, you know, that there are, you know, 16 networks making – you know, programs. How All anybody right. remembers anything, I don't, I don't know. Um, well, uh, the, you uh, don't. I mean, I find it's people that, sometimes... There's a show on, as I recall, there's a show on connected to your show or like on, 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 on TBS. There's a show I watched one episode of it. thirty. I have no idea what it's called. Not that I would watch it again, but I have no idea what it's called. But of course, of course, television will be better now. And the movies are. I'm looking here. I have in front of me Box Office Mojo, the site that. Right. So this has like the top 50 movies of the week, which is largely the top the movies of the summer because things still stay open in the box office. And as I look at this entire list, I see one in. I see two interesting movies. I think interesting. It's not, one of them, which is a genuinely interesting movie, is Hope Springs. That's this movie with Meryl Streep and Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. about a one-year-old marriage that is in crisis because they no longer. They no longer have intimate relations. And Tommy gives one of the best performances of the last 10 years in this movie. It is really? really good. So we should, uh, I should watch that. Really good. And it's very, it's very powerful and it's very unsettling. It's very unusual for Hollywood. Um, and it's made $58 million, but it does have the biggest female, interestingly enough, I mean, Meryl Streep, I think, is now right. the biggest female drawn in Hollywood. And it'll end up making $60 million, $62 million, which isn't bad, but it's not. And I wouldn't have expected more, and I don't think they should have expected more, because it's a, it's a tough, it's a, it's a, 
serious movie about un, about sad things, right? And then there's <laughs> that's actually the other that's the other title they were going to use. Yeah, a serious movie <laughs> right. about sad things. <laughs> In a and world, then there's yeah. Te- yeah. And then there's Ted, you know, which is basically Alf, you know, updated. It's you know right. a guy with a, with a with a foul mouth, you know, uh, stuffed animal uh, in his thirties. <laughs> I thought Ted was very, very funny. A lot of people didn't. But, you know, Ted, $60 million by, by Seth MacFarlane, who, you know, makes Family Guy and American Dad and stuff like that, neither of which I particularly like. But, you know, this is basically just a series of dirty jokes and rendered very effectively. And, you know, $220 million, $230 million. Out of nowhere, both of these things I think are rational. Every box office thing that I'm seeing here, I'm not looking at this and thinking it's really terrible that you know the that uh, Paranorman only made forty five million dollars. It's really terrible that the Bourne Legacy right. has will now gross less than it than it than it will have cost to make. Right. These right. things don't. It's not, not deserved. They don't deserve to do any better. You know. Well, the, well I mean, the main thing about. All of them make it up. All of them yeah. make it up, though, in, in home box office. I mean, it's the thing. Hope Springs is one of those things that happens. You know, it's a, it's a, the the actual box office release is just sort of almost kabuki counter programming against, uh, you know, whatever the kids' movie is. Yeah. Um, and also probably they they might have released it too soon. They probably should have released it in the autumn, uh, when all the kids go back to right. school and the adults go back to the movie theaters. But really, it's just all about making sure it's in. You can rent it uh, in uh, you know November December. Well, I was just but you know say, the main thing. The main yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, um, the greatest news from the box office in a while now is that uh, the Oogie Loves <laughs> yeah. was the single most <laughs> was the single lowest grossing major film of all time. <laughs> it, it I think it it was open in like two thousand theaters. It's from the guy who was the who who was the marketing genius behind Teletubbies. Um, that's how they advertise it. You know, not the creator of Teletubbies, but the marketing genius <laughs> um, came up with Oogie Loves, and it was supposed to be this huge rollout. Um, it has this really, the, the very rare, my daughter loves all movies almost, because she just loves any excuse to go to the movies. And we saw the trailer, and it made us both feel terribly unsafe. <laughs> it, it was it was the kind of thing daddy that, i'm scared <laughs> it really, no I'm, I'm not kidding it has this vaguely canadian thing about it it just feels off it feels like the kind of thing that like peter you know pederas imagine they can get the kid into the van with it was so terrible <laughs> oh it was so uh, i'm not gonna see it i want to see it now and, i would now I, can I just say one thing? I would like to say one thing about Hollywood, and this is a very big thing, because right now I believe Men in Black Four, Men in Black Seven, right. or whatever Men in Black came out. Anyway, so Men, that, that cost three hundred million dollars. Why did it cost three hundred dollars? In part because they went into production, they hadn't finished the script. Right. There was no script. Uh, I just read uh, something. I read something that Richard Gere said because he was in the Cotton Club, this notorious movie made in the '80s by by Francis Ford Coppola and Robert Evans, where someone was someone was uh, killed on set, and there was uh, there was a whole murder thing going on. And that movie cost you know what would be two hundred and something million dollars in, in 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 present day money, and there was no script, and no one knew what to do, and no one knew what ca- character they were playing. So my 
general advice, I, you know, I know I don't know show business and I really don't, I really have no reason to, you know, give anybody, no one should listen to me except here's the thing. Don't spend $300 million if you don't have a script written. Is that so hard? <laughs> John Carter, they didn't have the script written. So no wonder. I mean, what are they thinking? Well, Who I does such a thing? Yeah. I have a great idea. I have a great idea for you. I want you to invest $300 million in my car, in my car company, but I haven't, I don't have, I've never made an engine. But I have a great idea for a car. It's gonna you can you can sell it like this. It's black. It's got it's got fins, you know. And, and you know what 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 is the logic that well, goes logic into the notion is, the that you can is, make it up as you go along? It's logic based on experience, which is that we 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 they, they, people have started in films. They've started shooting because the whole goal of everyone in the movie, in the whole movie business except for the shareholders of the studios, which they don't count, is just to get the thing started, to start. Because once you start, you know, the first day of, of principal photography, everybody gets paid. Uh, if you're an executive, you get your bonus. You know, you start it. And, and they also know that the script they start with, even when they have a script that is a beginning, middle, and end, which one this one didn't, uh, when they start it, they at least know – they know it's going to come out different because the director is going to be rewriting the set and the actor is going to be doing stuff. And a lot of like one of one or two major comedies this summer died precisely because of this, because there was too much improving, which is always a disaster when actors want to improv. But that's what happens on, on movie sets. And, and, and uh, what, what, what Men in Black was so stupid was that they, they didn't they didn't need to have a whole script because they knew they were going to take a break in between filming of like six months, which they had to do because everybody else's schedule didn't work and they needed to have these, these schedules are, 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 are paramount. And that's, that's actually the secret problem behind the film business, which is that it's all about scheduling because you only can make a movie with a handful of people because obviously you could never put Brian Cranston and give him the lead because my God, he's from TV or he's not a movie star. Uh, and so you end up like, contorting you know, these these production schedules like pretzels. I mean, I remember one of the things you always say with it when you're hiring somebody, an actor who's coming off a feature is, "I need a firm stop date from that feature. That the uh, UPM of that feature has got to call me and tell me when the firm stop date is January seventeenth. After seventeenth, I have this guy." Because otherwise, features sometimes they go on long and they start late, and somebody's sick, and now they want two more weeks, and it kind of kills you. So, a lot of it is just 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 the. It's the new normal, you know, like nobody, nobody takes a step back. No, we don't have any John Fedoris's out here to say, wait a minute. Uh, everybody right. thinks, oh, this is fine. This, it'll all work out because half the time it always does. And uh, I, I suspect even if they had a script for Men in Black 3 or 4 or whatever it was, it still wouldn't work because people are tired of the format. They're tired. They don't, you know, there's only so many sequels you can suffer through if you're not nine. Well, I, I think the other, the other aspect of this, I mean, you get to it, which is that the, the no one who is actually in the business of green light, who is in the business of making that movie, the incentive is not to make a good movie. The incentive is to get the movie made because that's when that's right. when the spigot turns on and the you know and hundreds of millions of, of dollars flow like wine. So it is interesting that the that the business the 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 motion picture business is designed essentially by people who also have incentives to make expensive movies rather than cheap movies to make right. blockbusters rather than you know smaller character dramas you know that sort of thing and then you have these weird things though because if you it's the classic it's like the you know it's the home run versus the singles hitter like so is a home run hitter 
really more home run really more valuable or is somebody who can hit 330 and hit a lot of singles you know more valuable and obviously people have different opinions about about that but you know i th- i'm wondering actually rob you maybe you have an answer to this you know there's this big news story this week that um that jay leno uh, uh the jay leno show right uh, jay leno took a 50% pay cut in order both to save jobs, although it seems like it's 20 jobs, which means $20 million can't be 20 jobs, but to save a bunch of people from being laid off on the show, and I think presumably to save the show in some fashion or other. Now, that's pretty unprecedented. <laughs> yeah, in that, in, that, right? in, that, in that it's so unprecedented that I do not believe it. <laughs> I, I, I will need I will need a a, a board certified forensic accountant to to arrive in my home and to sit with me with a glass of wine and go over and explain to me exactly how that happened and 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 it, 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 to me it feels like a, a contract extension deal. Look, I, I first of all these shows are overstaffed; they're not understaffed. So there is an argument made. I hate to sound like Mitt Romney here, but there's an argument to be made for 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 downsizing. And you know, and Jay Leno has an enormous amount of personal credit. It invested in being a good guy, you know, because he is a good guy. Um, uh, and he's very, 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 very careful and attentive of his reputation. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's successful. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I would still want to see the number. I still want to see what it is, who shifted what to where. Uh, it, it's a, it, put it, well, put it this way. Well, I mean, you'll never, a, you'll, yeah. It's a very different see business. That, but- but I noticed that Robert Greenblatt, the head of NBC, gives an interview to, to, to the Wall Street Journal in which he says, this show doesn't make the money you used to. Nothing makes you know, implicit uh, negotiating tool. Look, we're going to do this with The Tonight Show, which yeah. is one of the two things on the network, on his network, that works. <laughs> you know, right. nothing else works except the Tonight Show and the Today Show. Nothing else. So, <laughs> so we're willing to do. You have no idea what we're willing to do with the stuff that doesn't work. You think <laughs> yeah. you're going to come to us and ask for stuff? We just cut the budget of a show that makes money by fifty percent. Yeah. It's the old gangster. What do you thing think we're going to do to you? Yeah, the old right? gangster. So, where you shoot the guy in the head and you turn to the other guy, and go. And I liked him. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> he was my brother-in-law. Yeah, I was, like, this is yeah. I was closer to him than anything. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just think it's an interesting turn, you know, because it is, you know, at some point this whole, this whole, this whole model, everybody knows, everyone's just waiting right. to model is sort of either going to collapse like a house of cards or it's just somehow going to degrade over time you know yeah. fewer and fewer viewers listen and it's still floating sort of like the you know like the euro it's still it's yeah still, well everybody, so everybody kind of yeah everybody suspended here is suspended in some odd way by the or and, you know by the entire european suspended by nothing you know it's like it's like the uh is it laputa and Oliver's uh, travels the city that is floating in air simply because everybody doesn't accept that it floats in air so <laughs> Once they well, realize yeah. that it doesn't float, it can't float in air. It just falls and crashes. <laughs> well, that principle uh, well established in Roadrunner cartoon. Exactly right, and that's actually one of the things we always do here. We always sort of, uh, whatever you negotiate a contract, you always say to your agent, your lawyer. So this is like what everybody else is getting, right? Yeah, yeah, you're you're well in line. You're well in line. Oh, okay. 
because it's not great. No, no, it's not great anymore. Let's, but this is what everybody else is getting, and then and you're fine with it <laughs> because as long as we're all living here, uh, I don't I don't want to find out that somebody else is making more doing ad supported cable half hour comedy than I am. I'm doing ad supported cable half hour comedy. What's the number? All right, I want the premium number. And so like, here it is. Here's what it is. Okay, fine, I'll take that. But the old days, of course, it was very different. But um. But I, I, people are discovering this terrible thing here uh, in Hollywood, which is really hasn't happened in years, which is that um, they, they're going to have to earn some more of that money. Uh, they're not just going to give it to you for being you know, one of the mediocre people standing – just basically standing outside the, the studio gates like guys outside of Home Depot where you got to hire somebody. So I'll hire these three guys. Um, you actually you – know, there's much more competition. There's much more, um, uh, there's much more opportunity, but that opportunity you – know, you know, supply goes up. Demand goes down. Everybody has to fight. So that's not so bad. Um, you, you know, I, I just think people who think that there's something wrong with that hate success. They hate success. <laughs> just, like, just like the Republicans said about the devil. They hate success. So they just they hate, hate it. it. They hate, they hate they success. Hate success. Oh, <laughs> Women. Ohio. <laughs> uh, successful Ohio women from Cuyahoga County. Wander. Um, speaking of success, we have been successful here, uh, but I know Jonah Goldberg's got to get on a plane. Jonah, where are you going? I'm going to Chicago. Chicago. Which, yes, which and oh, I, I don't mean to play. I don't, don't mean to play the race card, but you know, <laughs> I'm going to Chicago. Don't um, expect hear- going to a thing if you're thinking you're going to school today. You are not yeah. going to school roving today. bands of young people. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, no, I'm uh, going to Chicago for a uh, maybe you can for a, uh, political panel thing with Leonard Pitts. And um, why I'm doing this is is an outstanding question. I don't have a good answer to. Uh, I hope for a fee. No, I'm doing this. My syndicate, which is own which owns the Chicago Tribune, and this is a Chicago Tribune event, wants me, and I'm trying to make nice on the Chicago Tribune and my syndicate. And I told them that I would do this because I'm stupid. <laughs> okay, that's, that's good. Long we long, long we recognize that. that. Although I do Although like I, the the phrase "my syndicate." It sounds very getting all, turning it all the way back. Sounds very 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 like one of those shows that that John Manic shows that John indexed for his parents. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with a violin case and a Tommy yeah. gun. And yeah, yeah. Carol gets involved the in the syndicate. syndicate. <laughs> that's right. Got the, the Lakeville Road Boys. Yeah. So, uh, John, <laughs> uh, everything good with you? Are you, any any big plans coming up? Anything we should know about? Well, let's see. Uh, I have a dentist appointment. Um, I uh, I have to write a column uh, later today, uh, so I have to uh, think of something to write and write it. And uh, uh, most important, uh, no, I've got nothing. Okay, hey, speak, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> speaking of dental appointments, uh, the funniest yes. line I've heard in the sitcom in a while. Um, I was wa- I missed it the first time. Community, you know, does these weird ripoffs where they go on these weird tangents, and they did one which was a ripoff of the whole Law and Order Dick Wolf franchise. Mm-hmm. And in the very beginning of the episode, you know, before they discover the the body on the floor, which was in fact a biology project gone awry, um, two janitors are mopping up, and one janitor says to the other janitor, "You know, you've got to stop hitting on your dental hygienist." And the other janitor says, hey, she's the one putting her hands in my mouth. 
<laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> I think three sumo wrestlers was better. Than- <laughs> I, I have to say, I have to say, we have bookended this in just exactly the right fashion. Uh, uh, fellas, it's been a lot of fun. Um, John, right. go, good luck catching your plane. Uh, John, as always, that. talk to you soon. Um, you can find okay. John Ports on the Contentions blog, uh, uh, which is uh, a part of Commentary Magazine. And Joan Goldberg, of course, is at NRO in various places, including Syndicate. syndicate. Uh, John Pedortz writes uh, in the New York Post. Uh, how, how, how many times a week, John? Uh, at least twice. So I should have one, <laughs> I should have one tommorrow at mypost.com, <laughs> commentarymagazine.com, uh, and uh, most important, everybody needs to watch Sullivan and Son Thursday nights on What's TBS. Last, last, last one of the okay. season is Thursday night. And uh, if you are of the center-right persuasion, you will enjoy the fact that we have a character in the show say that he is not white because he is one 30-second Cherokee. Spoiler alert! Dog whistle. Dog whistle. Dog whistle. Hey, fellas, talk to you soon. Performances, two great performances on Sullivan and Sons. Sullivan and Son, Jody Long and Christine Ebersole. Both of them should be battling it out for for Emmy, in my opinion. Who knows if such a thing will Thank happen? You. But I. Uh, well, that's very kind of you. I will pass on your uh, your your good wishes to both of them. Dude, there's a guy on a treadmill okay. somewhere listening to this podcast, wondering when he can switch to the next one because he thinks it's over and it never ends. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's over now. You got a plane to catch. Goodbye. It's always great to talk to you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Join the conversation.